Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, Dr. Sean Davis, who leads the drug delivery team of the Biopharmaceuticals Development Organization at AstraZeneca, is discussing how the future of drug delivery is patients interacting less with their disease and what steps we can take to make that future a reality. Welcome, Sean. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. You're a passionate advocate for patients interacting less with their disease. Why is this a topic that's so important to you and one that you want to discuss now? You know, I'm obviously an advocate for patients understanding their disease and engaging with it in a way that's helpful for them to make good decisions for themselves and to hopefully resolve the disease. But in the bigger picture, my goal is to bring people to the highest quality of life. And for me, quality of life doesn't mean frequent injections and dealing with the disease on a day-to-day basis. It means understanding that you have a disease, understanding what it means in your lifestyle, and then minimizing its impact on every element of your lifestyle. So that's really what I'm thinking about when I talk about less frequent dosing and less engagement with your disease. It's, um, you know, a, a very specific piece allowing them to sort of free themselves up, if you will. How does this play into the direction that pharma and drug delivery is headed? From a drug delivery standpoint, long-acting formulations, certainly nothing new. The big difference is uh, starting to think about it from a biopharmaceutical or a large molecule perspective. One of the huge sort of changes in the industry overall for developing medicines was the introduction of biologic molecules and the ability to produce proteins and uh, and monoclonal antibodies and other modalities of those natures. And one of the great things about them was that they typically were dosed less frequently than you would take an oral small molecule. And of course, the small molecules, most people think about taking a pill once a day to get better. Uh, If they're lucky, sometimes it's more than one pill a day. And when they introduced uh, monoclonal antibodies, nobody was happy about the fact that it was an injection, but at least it was an injection once a week, or in some rare instances, once every couple of weeks. So that was a benefit. But of course, it was more burdensome from the standpoint of it actually being an injection as opposed to a pill that they could take and they were more comfortable with. So I think the you know advent of the idea for drug delivery is an extension of what's already being done. What's really shifting here, I think, is the overall thought process of drug development or you know therapeutic development in the long run. And for me, it's really about thinking even beyond drug product or even combination products. Many companies are now not thinking about what they're going to fill into a vial, but you know, how is the patient engaging with the device? How are they using that and in, in putting it into their lifestyle in a minimally invasive way to deliver the therapy? And I would argue we need to move even farther beyond that. We need to start thinking about everything from how is the patient first diagnosed to how are they prescribed the medication? How do they uh, receive the medication? How do we keep them adherent so they achieve the maximum benefit from the drug? And that's a much bigger picture than making the molecule and putting it into a vial. When you start to look at that broader scope, it can be a little bit daunting because there's a lot that's out of of our control as a manufacturer of drugs. But by thinking through all of those, we identify opportunities where we can, you know, maybe not insert ourselves, but at least influence how the process goes to make things better for the patient. You often hear this term patient centricity being thrown around and you ask 10 people and you get 10 different answers. But at the heart of it is still that idea that If we are less focused on this target inside of the body and this molecule engaging with that target and more focused on this is a person who's experiencing something that is detracting from their quality of life, how are we going to return them to the full quality of life or the fullest quality we can achieve? And where do we need to play to make that possible? How do you 
begin to understand the patient's needs, translate that into what is needed target or delivery wise, and balance those two perspectives? No, that's a, a fantastic and challenging question. I, I saw a really nice talk yesterday at a controlled release society meeting where uh, they, they were working on digital solutions for pharma and they were showing all of the different stakeholders you have to sort of meet their needs of and all of the different demands that have to be met for a successful product. And they were getting to the point where they're saying like, no human can even think about all these things, let alone create a rational strategy to achieve them. So you need a neural net to do this for you. Uh, I'm not sure I totally agree that I need a neural net to do that. I think it's really about recognizing that while every patient is an individual and they will have distinct interests and behaviors and differences, there are commonalities that you can design towards. As an example, Every patient that I've had the fortune of engaging with, whether it's in a, a device study or evaluation of a, a different molecule, they want to feel confident that they've received the drug that they were prescribed. They want to feel comfortable and believe that the quality of the product is the highest. So there, there are these common themes that run through things that you can design towards. Now, it's difficult because in many cases, we aren't able to actually evaluate with patients different options as cleanly as we would like. There may be a marketing evaluation where you're asking a series of questions. And I'm sure most of your podcast listeners are aware that when you're asked a question and when you answer it, it may be quite different than when you're actually in that situation, especially if it involves things that are difficult for you to imagine. So if I show you two different devices and I say, well, I mean, this one takes 10 seconds to deliver the drug into you. And this one takes 10 minutes. Which one would you prefer? Well, everybody says 10 seconds. Nobody says, please make it take 10 minutes. But if I told you the 10 second one was going to feel like a bee sting and the 10 minute one was going to feel like, you know, a warm summer breeze across your skin, well, maybe I'll take a 10 minute warm summer breeze. So we do have to do our best to understand the needs of the patients and translate those into actual targets that we can design toward. And that can be difficult. And when you think about all of the additional complexity of not just doing your best to meet patients' needs but recognizing the competitive landscape, recognizing the attributes of your uh, molecule that you're developing towards. And if we're being honest, recognizing the cost and time required to develop those things. It is substantial. So, you know, when you're writing business cases for these things and you have one option, which is just throw it in a vial, get it out the door, that's a lot less expensive than developing an easy to use injection device that patients are going to be comfortable with and will be uh, you know, capable of operating on a re uh, repeated basis and have the confidence that they delivered the dose. So is that value worth it to you? I would argue the direction of the market today is yes, absolutely. That market, it's worth it to you in almost all therapeutic areas. It is a difficult trade-off, no question, but by keeping the patient at the center of our thought process, it resolves some of these things. So like when you see two business cases and one ends in a situation where it's like, well, is that what you'd want your family to experience? It gets easier to resolve some of these questions and the investment is a little bit easier to rationalize, even if the dollars and cents don't always match up. Of the pressure points you laid out, such as the competitive landscape, quantifying patient feedback, et cetera, what do you view as one of the bigger hurdles to realizing this vision? I mean, to me, one of the biggest hurdles is the tension between time to market and how idealized can I make the product? You know, a lot of times people think about time to market from a, a financial return standpoint. The sooner you get to the market, the sooner you can start selling something and you make some money. That's positive for the company to be able to invest in future development. But the longer you have, 
the better you can make that product and the more idealized and the closer you'll get to maybe what the perfect version of it is. But sometimes people forget that time to market is actually a patient value. If there's no other therapy available, then any therapy is incredibly important to those patient populations. And so for me, one of the biggest challenges isn't do I launch with X or launch with Y later, it's how do I thoughtfully balance the fastest entry into the market with something that delivers value to the patients with a really thoughtful progression in the future to move myself closer to that idealized form. So I don't want to launch and then start thinking about putting it into a nicer device because that could be another seven years. What I really want to think about is, okay, I'm in a phase three trial. If I achieve the outcome I want, I'm going to launch in this time frame with this form factor. But I know that in the long term, this is what I'm trying to get to, some alternate version. And so I'm going to start developing that in parallel. And now it does become a little tougher, right? Because now you haven't even launched the product, but you're asking to invest in a second version of it. And in most companies, you don't just have one product, you have multiple products. And so if you take the people to start developing a second version of this thing, that means they aren't developing the first version of some other thing. And so I think the biggest challenge for us is just managing that tension between wanting to make the best possible product or outcome for your patient and the recognition that we have to prioritize and ensure that we're delivering for all of our patients, not just a single patient population. The investment required is hard to push forward in most organizations and for good reason, because there can be better uses. Like if, if the patients already have access to medication and I'm asking you to make a second version and there's another group of patients that don't have access to medication, is it fair to start making a second version? Knowing those tensions and balancing acts, what is the overriding value for stakeholders involved that should guide us in spite of the tensions? Taking a step back, less frequent dose and dosing nobody's going to argue against, please give me more injections, make me take more pills. So I think that's very obvious from the benefit of less frequent dosing. What's a little bit less obvious to many people is the potential benefit for less frequent dosing on the actual compliance or adherence with the therapy. So how likely is the patient to stay on therapy? And, you know, a great case example of this is with reversible contraceptives. So, you know, in many cases, people take a daily pill in order to manage the hormones in the body and uh, manage the potential for pregnancy. This is one of the areas where some long-term, uh, long-acting implants were some of the first opportunities in really, you know, reducing frequency of dosing. And I'm talking about reducing frequency from once a day pill to once every three years. So that's a, a, just a massive jump. And with these implants, it means that the patient no longer is making a daily decision or has to remember to make a decision on a day-to-day -day basis. Instead, the default option is that they will receive the medication unless they take action to stop taking the medication. So they still have the freedom to act. This isn't about removing freedom from people. It's about lowering barriers to make it easier for them to stay on the therapy. And in that case, you see massive improvements in overall compliance rates. And Adherence is one of those things that might actually be the triple win, right? If you're ill and you're prescribed a medication that should make you better, then receiving that medication by default is doing a good thing for the patient and they're receiving the therapy that they are prescribed. And that gives them the positive outcome for whatever this disease is that they're trying to treat. By being treated for that disease, not only does the patient resolve that issue, but they avoid all of the comorbidities that might come along with it. 
So for example, if we're talking about high cholesterol, you have a whole series of cardiovascular or metabolic diseases that may follow on from having the high cholesterol. By staying adherent, not only do you stay healthier, but you avoid other diseases, making yourself even healthier and potentially saving a tremendous amount of both illness for the patient, as well as money from the healthcare savings system and from the payer who then has to pay for all of these things. I've heard several payers raise the point that improving adherence is strictly a financial play for pharma companies. You know, this is, you guys just want to sell more drug. And I'm not going to diminish the fact that we receive financial, you know, we, we get paid when people take the medication. No question. That's the business we're in. And, you know, we need that income in order to invest in additional therapies. So I, I think there's a good use for it. But yes, there's a financial interest in us keeping people adherent. But there's also a financial interest for the payer to keep people adherent because it avoids all of these comorbidities and them then having to pay for even more serious interventions. In some cases, I mean, you look at the math and, you know, you keep somebody on a therapy in an earlier stage of the disease rather than allowing it to progress and potentially require a transplant or something even more serious. So the savings can be tremendous. And I think it's really expecting the worst from an industry when you say that you're doing it strictly for the money. And in my, my opinion, it's a little bit short-sighted because we know the trajectory of most of these diseases. We know what happens if you don't treat them and we can project what the costs are going to be and they can too. So I think it could be a very serious, you know, a really substantial benefit for the patients, a substantial benefit for pharma, substantial benefit for, for the payers. And of course, I would say from a physician standpoint, their interests, I hope, are always aligned with the patient. They've prescribed this medication because they want the best for their patient. And so, you know, by benefiting them through the continual use and the outcomes, it's, you know, aligning their incentives with the patient as well. You know, you can argue it's like the most obvious answer is, you know, going down this path. The problem is it's anything but obvious when you have to invest in technologies that don't currently exist. And it's a big investment. How would you like to see pharma move forward in a way that accomplishes these goals, but de-risks as much as possible? In terms of risk, one of the most amazing things to me when I started working with biotechs and large pharma was their acceptance of risk when it comes to molecules. They're very good at calculating the probability of success for a new molecule. And sometimes those numbers are very low in the early stages of development, but they're fine with that. They're, you know, they're kind of spreading that risk across multiple molecules and they're dealing with it, no problem. That's because they're experts in creating those molecules and in that process. And so experts acknowledge risk more easily in their area of expertise and manage it. For areas outside of their expertise, and I would argue developing new devices or new drug delivery is not the core expertise of most large pharma companies. They are surprisingly risk averse. When you tell them that I think there's a 50% chance or a 35% chance that we'll be able to develop a new technology that allows this to happen, they just want to stop things right away. Well, I mean, 35% chance, it's just too low. And then when I look at their probability to succeed for the molecule and it's 15%, or 20%. I was like, wait a minute, why are we okay with 15% or 20% over here and not okay with 35% over there? Now, in fairness, combining 35% and 15% makes you have an even lower probability of success. So you have to sort of manage that. And that's one of the reasons that you may want to decouple the risk from new technological developments for drug delivery or devices from the risk of the molecule. 
And another good reason that you move forward quickly into patients with the molecule and sort of a default configuration to answer some of those questions so you don't compound that risk. But you can see really quickly, this evaluation of probabilities and the combination of them gets complicated. And so, you know, I'd love to see us move towards a world where organizations use sort of a, a Bayesian statistical approach of acknowledging what the baseline probability of success is, managing that relative to, you know, the existing situation. And they do that for molecules, but I haven't seen so far one that does that across the entire spectrum of the delivery device and all these other pieces. And I think that would be helpful. And then the piece that I think would really help manage or mitigate a lot of that risk is uh, by taking a platform-based approach, meaning I will develop a technology that is suitable for supporting, in this case, long-acting delivery of biologics off of the timeline of the actual molecule. We're going to figure out what the design space is for this technology. We're going to figure out which molecules fit in that design space, and then we can start developing around that. And when it's ready, we start applying it to a product so that it matches up from a timeline standpoint, doesn't delay the launch of the molecule, but also, man also matches up from a risk standpoint, because we've sort of managed that risk offline and gotten it to a low enough level to where you can have the confidence that you have success. So that's a kind of where I'm hoping a lot of the industry will go for in the future, but I'll just be blunt and say that's a really tough ask for most pharma organizations today. You know, if you ask a car company to make a new car platform, no problem. We get it. We're going to invest more up front. We're going to make lots of different cars on this platform. That's easy enough. If you ask a pharma company to invest in a platform for a technology that's not a drug, they start questioning, why do I want to invest all that money in a quote unquote platform when I could invest that same money in a new molecule. This is a dynamic tension that has to be managed and you know, has to be prioritized. And, and what would your answer be if someone asked why they should invest in a platform instead of in a molecule? My answer is I wouldn't do it for a single molecule. You don't develop platforms for one molecule. You develop a platform because you think you have four or five assets that are all going to benefit. You know, for an individual molecule, the return on investment wouldn't be sufficient. Like you wouldn't make that investment. But if I knew I was going to do it for five molecules, then the investment and the risk is amortized across five. Both of those things drop down and it starts looking easier, at least in my eyes. But at the end of the day, you're still trying to make new molecules. So I, I don't know that I have a perfect answer for you other than I think if you have a long enough view on your portfolio and are confident in the portfolio coming forward with multiple assets that fit, then I personally think it's a good investment. Why is now a good time to be thinking about the longer term vision? In fairness, I, I think drug delivery technologies have been evolving considerably over the last 50 to 60 years. And we have made progress, maybe not as much as some of us would have hoped, but we're making progress. So I don't know that there's a single technological shift that now makes the right time. I think what's really kind of changing, at least from a, a biopharmaceutical or a large molecule standpoint, is that for a long time, people thought that Everything would be driven by safety and efficacy for these molecules because nobody would ever be able to duplicate another antibody that's exactly the same, you know, kind of a generic version of things. And when you live in a world where safety and efficacy drives everything, then your desire and meaning, willingness to invest in new delivery technologies or something that's a little bit more patient-centric can be more difficult to rationalize. However, that's not the way things have turned out. 
the industry over the last 30 years, especially in the you know monoclonal antibody space, has progressed tremendously. And now making a biosimilar or generic version of somebody else's molecule is fairly commonplace. I mean, there's still a lot of legal action to sort out, you know, who can do what, but the pure technical challenge of replicating another molecule can be overcome. And that means that you aren't just competing on safety and efficacy because somebody else is coming with a molecule that's exactly the same. And in some instances, we've seen even outside of a biosimilar, just the development of two molecules that behave very similarly from a safety and efficacy standpoint being launched within weeks of one another. And so it came down to what do patients prefer? Do they prefer this dose or that dose, this delivery device, that delivery device? So it's moving you from a world where it's limited options, you take what you can get, to, I don't know if I want to call it like a consumer choice world, but it's it's a world where there are more choices. And if there are more choices, then you want to make sure that your product and your therapy is the one that's being you know chosen. So you know I, I think that competitive pressure is a big driver for some of this. There is also a greater appreciation from a patient centricity point of view. Right. You know, I, I think the relationship between physicians and patients has evolved tremendously over the years. You know, I don't want to say that it was never good, but I think there was a, you know, a period where it was more transactional. You came in, you know, they told you what to take, you took it, you moved on with things, you hoped it helped. Well, probably you got prescribed and you, you filled it once or twice and then you didn't take it. Um, and then, you know, you didn't get any better. And now patients come in armed with far more information about whatever their status is. You know, they've gone to Dr. Google, they've gone to WebMD, they've, you know, they come in with a ream of papers for their conversation with a physician. And it's more of a dialogue and a conversation about what's important to that patient. And I heard that there's this new, new drug, you know, just coming on the market. Should I consider that? What does it mean to me? Well, I mean, the new drug offers this, the old drug offers that, you know, which one is better for you? You know, the physician will hopefully have a, a strong point of view especially when it comes to the actual safety and efficacy, but then the patient's point of view gets incorporated as well. This one requires you to take a pump home and learn how to work a pump. This one means you're going to come into the office every week, but you're going to have professionals managing all of those things for you. So you don't have to worry about any of it. What, what direction feels right for you? I think there are some cultural changes. I think there are some competitive dynamics in the market that are changing. And then there is a technological evolution, but I would say, I would argue it's more on the molecule side of things, demonstrating that we can create, you know, essentially exact copies of molecules that makes this more interesting and, you know, now more relevant time. What would be your call to action and next steps? I mean, a lot of it depends on the audience. You know, I, I issued kind of a challenge at last partnership opportunities for drug delivery to, you know, get the audience to think about what they were doing to drive some of these benefits for patients and how are they approaching it. And, you know, uh, one company may be thinking about long acting biologics. Another company may be thinking about gene therapy or even gene editing, where they're just directly editing the genome and you'll never take another injection. It's a one-time shot type of deal. So I can't say that there's a single piece that people should be taking away, but the broader message that I'm really pushing for is for all of us to be thinking about how to allow patients to sort of be defaulted into health and to minimize the effort on their part to achieve that. So how do we make it as easy as possible for patients to go back to being people? Because that's all they're really asking for. So that, that's, I think that'd be my end message. And you know, each of you have unique talents and skills and all of you can deliver it in your own way. 
but you have to proactively go out there and do it and not just wait for it to appear on your doorstep one day. You know, there are very few diseases today where, you know, you quote unquote cure it and far more of them are becoming lifestyle diseases that are going to have to be managed. And, you know, that's actually a, a real positive statement. You know, a lot of people think that uh, like, this is a negative statement that we can't cure diseases. In fact, people are living so much longer now that they have the opportunity, if you will, to get these diseases and manage them in a meaningful way, rather than a disease being a death sentence or disease being a, you're confined to a wheelchair type of sentence. On one hand, it's fantastic that we're able to extend people's lives and have them live much more healthily, but we have to be cognizant of those trade-offs of what we're asking them to do to achieve that. And my focus is on minimizing what I ask of the patients and allowing them to get as close to a cure as possible. And if I don't have to think about something and it's just being done in the background, I mean, that's good enough for me. Thank you so much, Sean, for taking the time to speak with us. Again, Dr. Sean Davis leads the drug delivery team of the Biopharmaceuticals Development Organization at AstraZeneca. For more information on PharmaTalk Radio podcasts, you can visit theconferenceforum.org. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.